Now, in the wake of recent events involving a well-known church leader who has abandoned his marriage, his church, his ministry, and his identity as a Christian, much discussion has been generated on the topic. And so, in the past couple of weeks, I have read like thousands of words on this subject. And one article in particular poignantly raised a few points that I would like to highlight as we begin this morning. It comes from an article by Tim Challey's uh, Missing Elements in our Discussions About Apostasy. He says the first thing we ought to consider is that apostates are self-deceived. Okay? Years before a man or woman apostatizes, he or she would probably be shocked to hear what the future holds. They, they live like Christians because they believe they are Christians. And we believe they are saved because they believe they are saved. And even provided some evidence for it. Then he says this, he says, this puts the call on each of us to ensure that we are not self-deceived. But that we have genuinely come to Christ in repentance and in faith. Their apostasy provides us the crucial opportunity to examine our own hearts before the Lord. Okay? Secondly, he says, apostasy should not surprise us. That sounds like a pretty interesting statement, doesn't it? He said, if the Apostle Paul lost some of his disciples to apostasy, which he did, and Jesus himself did as well, if you read John 6, in verse 66, you find out that because of the hard sayings that Jesus put forth, that many of his disciples were no longer following him. John 666. It should not surprise us if we lose some of our disciples as well, those that walk with us. These recent examples are certainly not the first in the history of Christianity and will unfortunately not be the last. So that's the second thing to keep in mind. Third thing is this. That trajectory matters. Now, what, do, what does he mean by that? Well, it's rare that people apostatize all of a sudden. Okay? Rather, there will almost always have been a long trajectory away from genuine Christian faith and practice and toward distinctly unchristian faith and practice. I expect those who knew these men that we brought up last week, and we were talking about those who saw their lives up close and personal, could tell us of a slow drift rather than a sudden deconversion that happened. This demonstrates the importance of having people in our lives who will confront us and redirect us, not just when we've gone past the point of no return, but at the point we begin to start going astray. Amen? Even by very small degrees. This also demonstrates the importance of having a vital relationship with God and a sensitivity to his spirit as he examines and confronts and assures us. And so we should be praying the prayer of the psalmist in Psalms 26, 2, which says, Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and mind. <coughs> then, apostasy is not always permanent. <coughs> There's a hope. Just as unbelievers can convince themselves that they are saved, now watch this, believers can convince themselves that they're not saved. That's an interesting twist, isn't it? 
But whether these men are saved or unsaved or women, the solution is one and the same. Here's the key. We need the gospel of Jesus Christ. They need to repent and believe. They need to confess their sins and receive forgiveness of sins. And we need to be pleading with God that he will reveal himself to them, that he is still their God and Father, or that he can be their God and Father for the first time. And finally, believe it or not, apostasy accomplishes good in the church. You say, how can that possibly be? Well, the revelation that some have abandoned the faith warns the rest to, quote, be all the more diligent to confirm our calling and election. That's 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. And that is precisely what I want to address this morning. The idea of self-evaluation. Self-examination. Being diligent to confirm our salvation for the simple reason that we are prone to wander. As the hymn writer put it, you know it, I know it, we all feel it, that we are prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. That is why it is of utmost importance that we check our faith pulse regularly. There's a proverb in the business world that warns the man who takes no inventories finally becomes bankrupt. And what is true for those entrenched in that quest for success in a worldly sense is also true for those who have embarked on the path of spiritual life. It is both advisable and biblical that we who claim to be Christ followers take periodic spiritual inventories. The dangers of neglecting the formation of our spiritual life are way too great. If we aren't doing regular self-checkups, we may one day find ourselves on the perilous edge of spiritual bankruptcy. Greek philosopher Pythagoras, I've said before, referred to as one of the greatest teachers of all time, demanded that every night his students would take stock by evaluating themselves and examining themselves and their progress for that day. They were to ask themselves basically questions such as these. How did I succeed today in my studies? Or could I have learned more? Could I have studied better? Or is there something that I neglected throughout the course of this day? Let me ask you a question. How many of us as professing believers ever do that before we turn in at night on a regular basis? Before you throw yourself into bed, do you ever ask yourself the question, how did I succeed today in practicing my faith? Or could I have shaken more salt or shined more light? Did I pray? Did I even acknowledge one sentence of his word? Is there anything that I've neglected that God has shown me that I need to change in my life? Now, self-examination is not something that most of us really enjoy. In fact, we often go out of our way to avoid it, right? It's not fun, is it? I've said it before, I'll say it again, that spiritual self-examination is a lot like remodeling a home. It takes longer than you planned, costs more than you figured, a lot messier than you anticipated, and requires a greater determination than you ever expected. But examining our spiritual status is not fun. In fact, it's downright disruptive for individuals and for the church as a whole. But it's dangerous to not do it. 
right? Scottish theologian and author Sinclair Ferguson recently said these words. He said, the solemn fact is that none of us can tell the difference between the beginning of backsliding and the beginning of apostasy. Well, think about that one for a while. Both look the same. So perhaps, he says, a personal health check is in order and today would be the best time to do it. Unquote. Evaluation and change are the constructive means by which God grows us into mature Christ followers. Is that right? Taking stock spiritually is essential if we're going to live our lives in close communion with Jesus and to present to the world an undistorted Jesus. Even more compelling is the fact that it's commanded of us. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5. We're going to look at just this one verse um, as our focal point today. 2 Corinthians 13, 5 says, Paul says to the Corinthians, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the tests? It's profoundly important that we surrender ourselves to the tough work that God desires to do in us as we develop a deeper trust in him, weave all the events of our lives, good and bad, into a beautiful tapestry of faith. We begin to hunger for more of that handiwork and we will experience an awakened desire to see Christ more fully formed in us. And that's what we talked about last week, the sovereignty of God as it relates to apostasy. What did we say last week? That God will not let any true believer go completely. Because he wants to form Christ in us. He began that work, he'll complete that work. But I wonder how many of us place ourselves under this scrutiny of God's word to the point that we examine our personal lives in light of what we hear, read, and see in the scriptures on a daily basis. Every time we hear God's word, we must evaluate, do a quick reality check. And when cracks are exposed in our lives, we must decide to make the needed changes. We can't just hear the truth and then like switch it off like a bad movie. You do that? You hear a truth about what God wants to do in your life and you just say, well, I'm not ready for that one yet. Click. I'll admit to you, I have done it before. God's word compels us to do what needs to be done. James chapter 1, verses 22 to 25. I'll be on the screen. But listen to them out of the message. Don't fool yourselves into thinking that you are a listener when you're anything but. Letting the word go in one ear and out the other. Act on what you hear. Those who hear and don't act are like those who glance in the mirror, walk away, and two minutes later have no idea who they are, what they look like. But whoever catches a glimpse of the revealed counsel of God, the free life, even out of the corner of his eye and sticks with it, is no distracted scatterbrain, but a man or woman of action. That person will find delight and affirmation in the action. 
Now think about it. If a person consistently hears the truth of God's word, yet avoids the mirror of self-evaluation, self-examination, they are placing themselves in danger of spiritual bankruptcy. Now listen, far too many people are examining everybody else's faith while neglecting their own. It's true of me, it's true of you, it's true of all of us at one point or another. Far too many of us are examining everybody else's faith and neglecting our own. The mere fact that I'm preaching this sermon comes as a result of somebody else's mess up. What about ours? We have a tendency to constantly put the guy or the girl next to us under the eye of scrutiny while we conveniently sidestep it. That's the nature of our humanity, isn't it? It is. But it's also a sign of something else. It's a sign of immaturity. The immature Corinthian church did exactly that to Paul. They questioned his faith and his authority But he had an answer for them in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. And I love the way the J.B. Phillips version translates that verse. It really brings it home. This is the way Paul says it, according to J.B. Phillips. You should be looking at yourselves to make sure that you're really Christ's. It's yourselves that you should be testing. You ought to know by this time that Christ Jesus is in you unless you are not real Christians at all. Who said there's no sarcasm in the Bible? There's plenty of sarcasm in the Bible. And here's one place for it. What a scathing rebuke that Paul makes here. Friends, each one of us needs to be making sure that we really belong to Christ. And we do that by constantly evaluating where we are in our relationship to him. In other terms... We need to do some spiritual DTR, right? Define the relationship. Define your relationship with Christ. Again, Peter echoes this concept in 2 Peter chapter 1. If you turn there, you can follow along with me or if you could just listen if you want. 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. Now for this very reason. Okay, what reason is that? Back up to verse 3. Peter says, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence, right? So that's the foundation. Now Peter says, now for that reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, That's a good one. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted having forgotten his spiritual purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble 
Last week we talked about this whole idea of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility and that tension that's there. and It's all right here as well, isn't it? God granted us divine power, everything pertaining to life and godliness, but then Peter says to us, because of that reason, you supply all these other things. You need to practice these things and be diligent to make certain about that calling because if those things are not operative in your life, well, you've forgotten about your purification of sins. This is an exhortation for us to evaluate, to make certain, to ask ourselves the questions, are we on the right track or are we drifting off track? Now, you've probably heard before that when an aircraft flies from New York to Los Angeles, it is off course almost 95% of the time. The navigator is constantly making adjustments and corrections until the final moment when the plane lands, exactly on target. The same thing must be done in our spiritual journey. Unless constant corrections and adjustments are made, we can easily begin to drift off course and end up somewhere we don't want to be. You know what that is? In danger of apostasy. Because, friends, spiritual drifting has deadly consequences. It's right now in this moment. Let's take a moment. Where are you on your spiritual journey? Are you on course? Are there any adjustments that need to be made? By examining ourselves, see, we uncover the sincerity and the authenticity of our profession of faith. Tell me how... Do you verify someone's salvation? How do you do it? Or maybe even your own. By what a person says? Or by what a person does? It's a trick question. The answer is both. Just because someone says they made a decision for Christ days ago or weeks ago or months ago or years ago, it doesn't necessarily make them a true disciple or a follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus said that a disciple will become like his master. Is that correct? Are we becoming like Jesus? What your life and my life is like right now, this instant, and what it is progressing towards in relation to that decision, has a great deal to do with the sincerity and genuineness of that decision. That's why all of us need these periodic self-checks. Evaluating whether or not we are truly in the faith is not just a nice suggestion, however. According to the Holy Spirit-inspired words of Paul here, it is a serious command. Again, in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul says, "'Test yourselves.'" to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. These are imperatives in the original language. There's no option here. In other words, the scripture commands that we continually test ourselves and examine ourselves. We we are to make it a continuing habit of life. And Paul uses two very distinct words here in this verse. Both can be translated as examine or test. The first word here he uses originally meant to pierce. Okay? 
came to mean to test intentionally to discover good or evil, power or weakness. This is the kind of testing that Satan used on Jesus in the wilderness when he underwent his temptation. It's the kind of testing the Pharisees used to entrap Christ in his words. This intent and the intent of this kind of examination is to see whether the subject will crack under the test and be exposed as weak or in need. In other words, this is a test of pressure. So the first reason that we're to test ourselves is to expose any glaring weaknesses or spiritual fractures in our lives. This kind of scrutiny may sometimes expose a person as a non-believer. I know a young woman who claimed to be a Christ follower for many, many years. She went to a church. She walked down the aisle. She said the words. She prayed the prayer. Everyone thought she was a believer for years. Even her family thought she was a believer. She even convinced herself that she was a believer. Do you know what happened a few years later? She came under the conviction of the word of God that she had heard during a message one time, and she admitted that her Christianity was never real. Something she heard caused her to examine the genuineness of her, of her salvation, and it came up short. And then in a spirit of humility and repentance, she truly gave her heart over to Christ. She made it a point to share that experience with me, and I have a great amount of respect for that confession of truth. You see, her story illustrates the result of not only the first aspect of the tests here in the examining process to expose a weakness, but also it's an illustration of the second. The second word that Paul uses here also means to scrutinize and examine, but with a different intent. This isn't the test of pressure. The second word and the intent of the repeated command is for a positive result. In other words, it means to examine for the purpose of approval. Don't misunderstand what Paul is getting at here. It's not just the flaws that we look for, folks, when we examine ourselves. For when we examine ourselves, we're also looking for something that puts a stamp of approval on our faith as well. Some kind of authentic affirmation. Like a changed life. Because a changed heart will always lead to a changed life. 2 Corinthians 5.17, you know that verse. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Have new things put the Lord's stamp of approval on your life? I just came back from a, a conference with a group of people. And, um, you know, you go through the old security deal, right? You go, you put your bags through the security on the, on the conveyor belt. And if there's anything in there that's not supposed to be there, you know what they do? They pull you out of line. And that happened a couple of times, not to me, but to a couple people. Something had been forgotten in the suitcase that wasn't supposed to be there, and it showed up on the screen. Let me ask you, if you were put under that kind of a scan by God, would you set the alarm off? A sin scanner. Would you be found lacking or would you be labeled as approved? 
Now, you and I may think we're okay because we say the right words or follow the right things, but it's not what we think that matters, is it? It's what the Lord says that's true, isn't it? 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 18 says this, For not he who commends himself is approved, but who the Lord commends. At the end of his letter to the Roman, Paul signs off by sending his greetings to people in the church, some of the closest people that he's done ministry with, right in the middle of this list. And you can look it up in Romans 16 if you want to. He says these words. He says, greet Apelles, the approved in Christ. What a great title. What a great thing to be said about you. Greet Apelles, the approved in Christ. Same word here that we're talking about. For approval purposes, test yourselves, Paul says. Examine yourselves. And it's not a joke. It's not a mere topic for another sermon to preach about. It's a serious command. And it's a serious command with a specific concern. Look again at verse 5 in 2 Corinthians 13. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. There's the concern to see if you are in the faith. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves that says toward the end that Jesus Christ is in you? Paul is really driving home the sarcasm. He's saying to them, don't you realize that Christ lives in you? And the word for recognize there is a word which means full knowledge. If you have the knowledge and the understanding that Christ lives in you, it ought to have an effect. If there's no effect, then Paul says, maybe Christ doesn't live in you at all. That's the reason for the evaluation and the examination. One of the greatest paradoxes of the century that we live in is that a huge percentage of Americans claim that they believe in God, that they believe that God is sovereign, while at the same time, abortion, immorality, marital infidelity, homosexuality, idolatry, criminal violence, substance abuse, pornography, racial prejudice, and social injustice rolls on in our society like a freewheeling truck. How can that be? The cultural slide of many Christians and entire churches into embracing with open arms what the Bible clearly forbids is confusing and confounding, not to mention contradictory. Does anyone else see that problem here? The problem we face on a regular basis these days, now listen to this, is that what was once considered deviant is now classified as variant. Let me say that again. What was once considered deviant is now classified as variant. The mantra seems to be, in so many words, my lifestyle's not necessarily wrong. It's just different. Something seriously amiss. There is a glaring lack of repentance in Christian circles today. 
Does the fact that Christ lives in us make any difference in us at all? That's what Paul's asking. Or do you not know that Christ Jesus is in you unless indeed you fail the test? I have to ask myself that question. Am I quick to repent when I find out or when I realize that I've done something sinful? Are you? If not, then maybe we need to examine whether or not Christ is really in us because I don't think Christ would stand for that. Really? He's convicting us. If he's not convicting us, there's a problem. It becomes clear then that self-examination is not just a serious command. It doesn't just look at a specific concern, but examining ourselves to see if we're in the faith carries with it a sobering consideration. Unless, indeed, you fail the test, Paul says. That's a scary line. Unless, indeed, we fail the test. Will you pass or fail the test? Now, we've got a few college students in the crowd here today. You like pass-fail tests? There's no wiggle room. You're either in or you're out. You either pass or you fail. I've often told you that when I speak on Sunday mornings, I believe that I am addressing at least four groups of people in the church. You know who they are? Ponderers, possessors, professors, and procrastinators. Those who are pondering faith in Jesus Christ, they're investigating it. These are spiritual seekers. Those who possess faith in Christ, genuine Christ followers. Those who profess faith in Christ, these are the intellectually convinced but spiritually unconverted. And then those who procrastinate about faith in Christ, those who for whatever reason resist taking the step. Fence sitters, mugwumps. They sit on the fence with their mugs on one side and their wump on the other. You know, fence sitters are a worse danger than the guy on the street who has never heard the gospel. Why? Because they've heard the truth and they haven't acted on it. Someone has said that hell is probably overrun with people who were never actively opposed to Christ, but who simply neglected the gospel. You cannot fence sit forever. You can't keep your feet in two worlds waiting to decide which way you're going to go. It gets extremely uncomfortable and sooner or later the fence falls over. Now the scripture says it's the time for decision. Now. So everybody here and everybody out there and everybody that hears this message on the radio someday, we're all culpable. We're never going to be able to stand before God one day and say, I didn't know. You know. I know. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13 says this in the New Living Translation. Be careful then, dear brothers and sisters, 
make sure that your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving, turning you away from the living God. You must warn each other every day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened against God. That's, that's the job of the church. That's the job of us as brothers and sisters to warn each other every single day. The book of Hebrews has some sobering warnings to people who are in that precarious, precarious place. They warn people to fully commit themselves to Christ while they still can, while the opportunity is still available because someday that opportunity won't be available. I believe the book of Hebrews was written with a threefold intent. It was a call to those who were having doubts about the faith, questions. It was a caution to those considering departing from the faith, those who were in danger of apostasy. And it's also a confirmation to those who are dedicated to the faith, those who are steadfast and walking diligently. And cradled within that book of Hebrews, the writer sounds five warnings to those who may not have become fully convinced or confirmed in their relationship with Christ. The Hebrew fence sitters. These are the ones who say they know the gospel is true, but they aren't yet ready to commit themselves to it. The excuses are many and very, very contemporary. The price is too high. Or I don't want to change the way I live. Or I don't want to be shunned by my family or my friends. And some of you may be on that wobbly fence today. You've been hearing the gospel for a while. Deep down inside, you know that's true. You know that gospel's true, but you haven't made that commitment yet. You can't seem to get your wump off the fence. Well, you figure that you have all the time in the world to decide, but here's the reality. If you're in that boat, you may find yourself on a sinking ship. And maybe you're in a different raft altogether. Truth be known, you did commit. Maybe, maybe you committed yourself to another church or followed the teaching of another pastor and you got burned badly. Or maybe you have a deep personal struggle in your life and you have had for most of your life with a questionable lifestyle or someone in your family or that you know very closely does and the world accepts it as normative behavior but the church calls it a sin. There's this bitter taste in your mouth about Christianity because of all of that. You're scarred, you're blistered and there's a very real danger that your wounds are becoming calloused instead of healed. You're all busted up inside, possibly. And you may be ready to chuck Christianity as a whole. Let me tell you something right now. That trajectory can shipwreck your life. I read years ago that about a half hour before the Titanic struck that murderous iceberg and sank, five actual warnings were given, telegraphed. But someone was too busy to take them seriously. And a half hour after the sixth warning was sounded, the vessel known as the ship that God himself could not sink 
went to its undersea grave. And you know what it did? It pulled 1,500 people along with it. Shipwrecked. Let me repeat something I've repeated many times from this pulpit, and I learned it from Steve Farrar about shipwrecks. Shipwrecks can take you farther than you want to go. Shipwrecks can keep you longer than you want to stay. And shipwrecks will cost you more than you wanted to pay. That's what sin does. That's what apostasy does. There are inescapable consequences to being shipwrecked. And they're outlined in the book of Hebrews. In the process of doing a spiritual self-check, we need to consider those things, and that's what we're going to do next week. But unbelief is the ultimate reason that people reject Christ. That's what it says in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 19. It says, so we see that they meaning the Old Testament Israelites, were not able to enter rest because of unbelief. Unbelief. That's the bottom line. You know, they'd rather hold on to a false hope that if they work hard enough at their own way, they'll figure it out and make it. But Jesus Christ doesn't offer a salvation experience that's based on stress, does he? He doesn't offer salvation that causes stress. God calls it rest. Eugene Peterson refers to it in the message as the unforced rhythms of grace. Come to me, Jesus says. Are you tired and worn out, burned out on religion? Then come to me. Get away with me, you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me, work with me, watch how I do it. Learn from the unforced rhythms of grace. I'm not going to lay anything ill-fitting or heavy upon you. Keep company with me and you'll learn how to live lightly and freely. And the only way to enter that rest is to believe. To trust in Jesus and the salvation that he offers. And there's this, an urgency involved, the book of Hebrews says. Today is the day, and Hebrews 4, 7 says, if again he fixes a certain day, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Understand that urgency and realize that not one of us can sidestep the scrutiny of God's word. We can't. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You can't run from God. Apostates beware. The word divides. It cuts people apart. It separates those who only profess from those who are truly devoted. You might be able to fool others, but you can't fool God. And his word cuts it straight. Hebrews 4.13 says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Like that scanner screen again. Nothing escapes it. 
God sees right through us down to our souls. Our deepest secrets are unveiled before him, wide open to his observation. In ancient times, the word open in that verse was used specifically in reference to a criminal trial. I'm going to wrap up with this. That in those days, a sharp dagger would be strapped to the accused criminal's neck with the point right here, ready to penetrate his chin or her chin. That person that was on trial, therefore, could not bow their head when they were being charged. They had to face the court full on. That's precisely the position each one of us occupies before an all-seeing, all-powerful God. No masks, no turning your head, no bowing your head. When we come under the examination of God's word, we come face to face with the truth about God's word, about God himself, and about ourselves. And there's no escaping it. Now, you know what? I love peanuts, comic strips. And there's one in particular that always gets me. It's the one where Lucy is giving Charlie Brown advice and she says to him, discouraged again, Charlie Brown, you know what your trouble is? Your trouble is that you're you. (laughs) What in the world can I do about that, Charlie Brown says. And she says, well, I, (laughs) I don't pretend to be able to give advice. I just point out the trouble. I don't want to simply point out the trouble to you here today. I want to give you biblical advice. Like I used to tell my soccer team when I coached them, the best way to get past the opposition and moving toward the goal is to employ a threefold strategy. Number one, you need to evaluate your position. Number two, you need to employ a drastic change of direction if you're in trouble. And number three, you need to explode with a radical change of pace. That's exactly what God counsels us to do today. Number one, evaluate your spiritual position. Pray the prayer of Dorothy Sayers who said, Lord, teach us to take our hearts and look them in the face, however difficult that may be. And if you're in danger of heading for shipwreck, then you need to employ principle number two, drastically change your direction. You know what the Bible calls that? Repent. Change your mind. Change your direction. Turn away from sin and run toward God. And then thirdly, radically change your pace because you and I don't have all the time in the world. We need to run toward God with everything we've got because God says today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Don't turn a deaf ear. And so I'm going to ask you right now before you leave here today to make a move, make a bold move, the boldest move of your life if you've never done it before, to give your life to the one who gave his life for you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do not take your word flippantly. And it was a heavy word today. But you challenge us, Lord God, to examine ourselves, to test ourselves, to see if we are in the faith. That we might realize that Jesus Christ lives in us unless indeed we fail the test. I pray, Father, for each and every soul that is in this house today. I pray, Father, that this word will have brought realization 
of something. And that father or someone has come to the realization that they are not who they thought they were. Or they're a fence sitter. And they have not asked Jesus Christ to come into their life and be their Lord and Savior. I pray that they would do it today by the simple means of just crying out to you in prayer. Because Lord Jesus, you always hear the prayer which asks for mercy. So I ask it, Lord God, that the enemy would not steal that seed and your Holy Spirit would draw them to yourself. For it's in Jesus' holy and precious name. For your sake, I pray. Amen.